Alrighty, welcome back to Armbar in episode two, Locked Out. I'm Matt. And I'm Ezra. We wanted to talk about the first episode, but we understood that there was more exciting content than MLB Lockout, and it hadn't officially happened on the day that we first recorded episode one. So for a week now, we've been in the MLB Lockout. There's been no moves other than minor league deals and the minor league rule five draft. Um, so we wanted to address it and let the listeners know what it is. So basically, the MLB Players Association is a union formed by the players. Um, They have a collective bargaining agreement, which is the thing they cannot agree on right now, which is the written legal contract between the employers and the union that is representing the employees. Um, So it's basically what's in the contract. It talks about wages, hours, terms, stuff like that, and anything that results in payment and sponsorships. And the two sides we got the owners uh and the mlbpa as we've we've talked about so we're going to start with the mlbpa and really just why they're so pissed off and honestly i'm with the mlbpa on this one if yeah. i'm being honest i just it's there's so much stuff that really needs changing in baseball and i don't think anybody's really taking the sides of the owners on this one Yeah, so we'll start off with the letter that MLBPA tweeted on the night of the lockout at midnight. Yeah, so uh, the MLBPA tweeted out a little statement um, pretty much saying, uh, in their words, they said, the shutdown is a dramatic measure regardless of the timing. It's not required by law or any other reason and that it was the owner's choice. Uh, And the MLBPA didn't really want that to happen. They wanted their players to, you know, have faces on the MLB website and they wanted their, their guys to be able to get paid to discuss contracts, all that stuff. And now they can't. And that is a real pain in the butt for these, especially for these young guys. Yeah, as as we said, I mean, the MLBPA, they're basically blaming the owners in this statement. Um, they're basically saying that the owners were trying to hold out as long as they could, hoping that the players would in their words, get not in their words exactly, but they were basically thinking that like to try and get rid of some of their like what they want and their so that they would play. And another another thing is that it's been a while since we've had a lockout in the MLB. Um, and as much as I hate to say it, the timing of this one is as good as it could get for the issue at hand. I remember. Um, obviously not when I was alive, but reading about the last lockout and how it really just screwed over the MLB season there. It wasn't even a World Series that year because of the lockout. And as much as I hate to say it, right now is the time to have it, even though it's taking away from free agency and big offseason trades. If it's going to happen, at least it happened now. So it's not taking away baseball games yet. Yes, the offseason is certainly the best time. I mean, the worst thing you'll miss is a few games in spring training where you'll see some of the top prospects or even lower graded prospects miss a few at bats here or there. And uh, probably the issue with, with the spring training is just going to be a lack of it. I feel like there's going to be a lot of times where early in this upcoming season, as long as, you know, the, the lockout goes is the time that we expect it to, which is probably a few months. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that they think middle January, end of February is where they're thinking it's going to end. And so with that, we're 
we're going to see a little rust at the beginning of the season, but that's nothing new considering our last baseball season was fresh off of a COVID season. So it, the rust will be there. And these guys are pro athletes, so they're going to get that rust off pretty fast. Yeah. So jumping right back into it, um, what MOBPA has proposed and what they want, and they said to the owners, according to ESPN's Jesse Rogers, was they want free agency to start at 29 and a half years old or five years of service time, whichever comes first, which would knock it down from what it is currently at six years of service time. Um, it's an interesting thing. They want to be get paid faster and so they can get more of these long-term contracts from and, around the league. And I really think it makes sense. I mean, we've seen with guys like Wander Franco and Tatis getting those big contracts really young, mostly because they can't get them for a long time considering they've just come up in the league. So I think this is a pretty decent step for the those guys so that they're not signing these huge deals too early yeah. and really just putting their 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 career just all in one basket you know yeah i mean i agree i mean looking at some the two that come to mind for me is ozzy albies and ronald acuna i mean they acuna has like an eight year 100 million dollar deal and albies is like seven years like 40 something million they're absolutely steals for the team and they could have gotten a lot more if they held out and i think they would agree that they probably should have held out i know they probably there's a chance that they probably end up back at, with the braves like i hope freddie freeman ends up please, Freddie, go back to the Braves. Don't go to the Dodgers. Um, but if they could have held out just a couple more years, you know, we could have seen them with these multi-hundred million dollar contracts like we see for guys like Franco and Tatis and the, those other big name guys that we expect them to be in the same conversation with. Yeah, exactly. All right. And the next thing they wanted was players becoming arbitration eligible after two seasons rather than three. And that's really just in the same breath as the the free agency starting at 29 and a half or five year service time. It's just to give these guys a l- more more uh, leverage in, in discussions. Yeah, they want to get off their rookie minimum contracts and get paid for how they're hitting, how they're playing, which is arbitration is when a mediator comes in between the two sides and gives them their what the fair amount is per, for a player to be paid. Exactly. The MLBPA really just wants to give their guys leverage in conversations for contracts. They want to give them the ability to choose their own path. And I feel like that's pretty, pretty reasonable. If if you ask me. Now here's where things get really interesting. The MLBPA wants an expanded 12 team postseason, and they want leagues to be realigned into two divisions. I I'm not going to lie. This is kind of where the MLBPA lost me. Um, the 12 team postseason, I understand. I mean, it's, it's no 16 team postseason like you have in the NBA or we had in the COVID season, because I hate that it should not be more than half the teams in the league getting the postseason. So I can deal with the 12, but the, the realignment to two divisions, that's where that that's kind of what bugs me. Yeah. It really throws me off. I mean, I could see from some teams why they'd want it, but if you look at the divisions, every team has their ups and downs. It's not like obviously the big markets like the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Cubs, the uh, Cardinals, the Dodgers, like their ups are going to be longer than like other teams like the Royals and the uh, Guardians. But or the uh, Orioles. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's just I just feel like every team gets their shot. You build prospects, you can build the right way. I mean, the Rays are 
the one of the smallest franchises, mark, one of the smallest markets, one of the smallest franchises, and they've been competing for two, three years, four years now, and they've always been a pain in the AL East. So. And on that on that same note, even though the Orioles have had very long lows, they've they have fought back, winning the division a few times in the twenty in the early twenty tens. Even though they now suck, they're building the right way with a great farm system. And we're going to see some improvement in the coming years. And we'll see that with most MLB franchises. The Marlins have won a World Series. The Royals won a World Series. The Cubs did too, even though they're a huge market team. They just sucked for a while. Um, but we're just, there's so much competitiveness in baseball. And with 162 game season, anything can happen. And I just think that making the the leagues into two divisions each, it just kind of takes away that competitive nature between divisions also. Yeah, I, th- I mean, for me, one of my favorite things to do is watch 18 games a year between the Red Sox and the Rays because the Rays will put random people out there, I swear, from the stands, and they'll throw 97. And it's just like, where did these guys come from? The Rays just know how to like build th- through prospects and through the draft and buy low, sell high. And I feel like more the small market teams should learn more how to do that. And even if you have to use a little bit more analytics like the Rays, I mean, I think it's a good like strategy and it's obviously paid off. And we know Moneyball works. We've seen it with two franchises. Teams should use that as a, as a stepping stool to get wins, to win games. It's not as difficult as it seems. Obviously, it's a professional sport. And you have to have the best players to win, but you can have the numbers back you up. The A's did it. Billy Bean showed us perfectly. He gave us the platform to do it. So I feel like teams should just follow suit. And another thing with these two divisions is how are we going to split them up? You're going to split up rivalries of like, you will probably have to split up one big rivalry, maybe two in each of these realignments with maybe a Cubs Cardinals rivalry getting split up or something like that, considering they're in the middle. If obviously this is of course, considering they go East West for, for the two divisions. Yeah. It would be interesting how they split up central divisions uh, geographically. I mean, with 15 teams in each league too, it'll be like, weird to see how they split it up because it won't be even it'll it'll just feel weird too we're so used to it the last time the divisions realigned was the astros moving to the american league and that seems like a a century ago really because the astros have just become this force in the in the al instead of their abysmal selves in the nl and i just I, I just don't like it. I feel like the two divisions, it doesn't make any sense for the game. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And if, like I said, it would make it uneven. The only thing I could see them doing is making creating two more teams, and I don't even see that happening. I mean, I know they've talked about teams in Nashville and a team in Montreal and a team in Vegas. But, I mean, you already have two teams that want to move. There's not going to be a lot of cities that are left after that. So it's going to be interesting. It ju- It just doesn't seem like – the thing that I, at least in my opinion, that the MLBPA should really be pushing for. I feel like this should be at the bottom of their of their grocery list right now. Yeah, and we actually have, still have two more things. We got the luxury tax threshold will be raised from $210 million to $240 million. This, um, this I'm fine with. That makes sense. I, I totally 
see the need for it. I mean, you know, just going into economics for a second, there's always going to be inflation. And this is just part of that. Yeah. I mean, they just want their guys to get paid once again. I know this would technically help the bigger market teams, but the smaller market teams, like their owners are still millionaires, if not billionaires, like they can spend money too. It's just about spending it in the right places. And I, we, I'm going to say it again, money ball works. And it's about putting that money in the right places. It doesn't matter how much you have. Yeah. It doesn't mean the money has to go on the field. It could be like, I know I'm going to keep referencing the race, but it works like an analytics department and stuff like that. Or even a new, new accommodations and stadiums. I know the trap needs some work, so maybe they should put a little less into analytics and more into making the trap a more fun stadium to visit. That is true. Um, but the last thing on the MLBPA wish list is the advertising patches on uniforms, which we see in soccer and now also in basketball more recently. And I, I understand. It makes yeah. sense. It's money for the league. Yeah, I understand it. I dislike it. I know I'm pretty sure the NHL this year even started putting advertisements on helmets and it looks weird, but I mean, you get used to it. The, the word's going to stink is the all-time uniforms, like the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Cubs that they're, you're so used to the Red Sox and with the all white and the red, like the one red stripe on connecting the jersey. And then you got the Yankees and the Cubs pinstripes. It's just a classic look. It's just going to look weird. Uh, the question for me really is where they're going to put it because I didn't like the idea of it at first and I don't really like it and still, but if they put it maybe on a hat on like the side of a hat, that would be fine. Um, I really, they, when they added the Nike logo to the jerseys, I was not a big fan of that either. Um, but you know, like Matt said, it's, you know, something you get to grow to get used to, but like also like Matt said, those all-time jerseys, those pinstripes, those iconic jerseys that you can't see any different. You can't just keep throwing at product placement on it. You you gotta put it on the hats. That's where that's where I'll stand. If you're gonna put advertising on the jerseys, put it on the hats. Spare us the pain of seeing you defile iconic jerseys. Yeah, it has to be on the hats. Cause I was even thinking like in the NBA, they have the Nike logo on one side and the advertisement on the other. But like in, in but in the NBA, all their logos are in the dead center of their jersey. Whereas in the MLB, you got some teams like the Cubs where they have a C in the top left instead of and you couldn't put a logo right next to their logo. Right. We can't just change the jerseys again <clears throat> one yeah. year later. I we gotta we gotta have some sense of consistency with these. Um and speaking of consistency, it's weird that they're that both of the uh, the arguing parties, they're actually both asking for the advertising patches. And the main difference is what the owners want here. They want a lot more money from it. They want a 70-30 split for the owners as opposed to the 60-40 split that the LBPA wants. Yeah, <clears throat> sorry about that. Yeah, I find it interesting. I mean, I don't even know how they would split it to the players, like 40%. I don't know if you would give it evenly or if it's to the guys that get paid, like the percentage of payroll. It, I mean, it's just a tough thing to allocate, really. Yeah. And the owners wanting to take even more of that, it's just, you know, it's just greedy. And that's what 
the owners really are. I feel like it tends to happen in sports. You know, the the owners want to either save the money by not paying big stars. Like, like we saw, of course, I'm going to reference the Orioles, but with the signing of Chris Davis over Nelson Cruz, the Orioles had the money to sign both, but they decided to sign one because they, the Angelos family wanted to save money. And as much as I hate that deal, it makes sense um, in the idea of it. But again, a 70-30 split seems a little unfair to me. Yeah, um, I mean, and then so I know we already started a little bit, but hop right over to the owner side. Uh, I know the MLB released a statement by Rob Manfred. Um, it was quite the interesting statement. Yeah, so Manfred was uh, a little more long-winded than the statement from the MLBPA. Um, for the most part, again, each side blames each other for this. But Rob Manfred was really just saying we tried to make our best efforts to make a deal with the Players Association, and we were unable to extend our 26-year-long history of labor peace. And he goes on to say that um, we believe that an off-season lockout is the best mechanism to protect the 2022 season, and we hope it'll jumpstart negotiations because, as he says, he just it's the MLBPA's fault. They're unable to listen and unwilling to listen is pretty much what he's saying. And it's just not a good look for Rob, honestly. And he's not had very many good looks recently. Yeah, no, he's not a likable guy within Major League Baseball. It's interesting that he blamed the Players Association um, for the lockout. It's just his, his PR team or himself they're just not painting him in the best light, especially considering the controversy with the rule changes that he wants. I mean, we, we've all gotten used to the, the pitch clock, but the other rule changes like the runner on second in extra innings. That he's already getting rid of. Which, which he already got rid of because everybody hated it so much. And that's a whole other conversation. I could talk about that for an hour. Um, but he's just tried to change the game so much and for guys like me and Matt and a lot of other fans I know my brother is a huge Rob Manfred hater um but he just needs to go honestly yeah there's no coincidence that every time he goes onto the World Series stage to hand over the trophy he gets booed it was it was bad I remember this year was really bad everybody cheering for the Braves happy that they won the ring they didn't want to see the Astros win and speaking of the Astros there's only one thing in baseball that's more hated than the Astros and it's weirdly the guy that did nothing not so weirdly really actually it's the guy that did nothing to the Astros for their cheating and it all it, it all just makes sense why we hate Rob Manfred. You know, it was the beginning of the end when he called the World Series trophy a piece of metal. Yeah, he said he wouldn't take it away because it's a piece of metal. And I, I understand that his job isn't really like his job description is a little vague. You know, he's supposed to negotiate the marketing and labor and he hires the umpires and works with television contracts when he's really just like the face of the owners. But the dude is just doing an awful job at it when you're supposed to be a face of a group of people. You're supposed to have charisma and you're supposed to be likable. And boy, oh boy, is he not. Yeah, it's it's unreal. 
I think the big thing that I saw while talking or reading his letter was something. Let me see if I can find it here. It was talking a lot about the money of it all and like, but it was interesting how the players themselves, like they just want to get paid from these billionaire owners and the owner's main thing is to make money. But when they're not paying the players and thinking more about themselves, it's just hard to be on their side. It's really difficult to be on the side of greed. Um, and another thing that the owners do want, I, we got a little off topic there because, you know, Rob Manfred sucks. Um, another thing that the owners want is, is very similar to the NBA also. They want to create a lottery for the draft. This was terrible. And I've, I've, I've seen my share of bad ideas in baseball. The runner on second base rule, the pitch clock the the seven inning double headers which honestly wasn't that bad of a rule but it just felt like high school instead of the major leagues but a draft lottery might be one of the worst yeah i mean i like the nba it makes sense you get the number one pick you're getting pretty much for the most part a guaranteed everyday nba player for the mlb you take the number one overall pick i think there's one hall of famer ever from that would got drafted number one overall I mean, let's put this into perspective. Mike Trout, arguably, but not for me, because he is the best player in baseball right now, was drafted, what, 27th overall? And the number one pick that year was Dustin Ackley, who most people don't remember. It's not, it's not about these guys that are going to come in right away and win for you. It's guys that you're going to build your, your foundation with. You're going to build them up over years sometimes there are guys that are in the minors for 10 years and then finally make their breakthrough we can't just change the draft to be like the nba because it's nothing like the nba draft yeah i mean even looking at last year like there's a strategy to the draft in the mlb it's not just take the best player it's take because like the pirates said this year they took the guy who was slotted supposed to fall to the red sox in number four they took him so that they could save money to pay people later on in the draft. And the number one prospect, Marcelo Meyer, ended up going number four to the Red Sox. So it's an inter- like the draft isn't just pick the best player, hope for the best. It's really a strategy on who you want on your team in the first round and the later rounds. And also with the amount of rounds, you can work so many different strategies. I know the Angels last year, what was it? They didn't take a single position player? None. Or maybe it was not a single pitcher, whatever it was. They clearly knew going in that's what they wanted to do. And with the NBA, there's two rounds. In the MLB draft, there's 25. You can't throw off that balance like that. It's, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I mean, even the COVID season, I know I keep bringing up the Red Sox, but, like, we drafted – we as the Red Sox, because I'm obviously a part of their organization. <laughs> um, they drafted Nick York, who wasn't supposed to go to like mid second round, and they got him for cheaper so that they could take Blaze Jordan in the third and spend pretty much the same money there as they did on Nick York. And both of them have become top 10 prospects in our system now. 
So like, it's really interesting. It's not just the guy you like, like I said, it's not just the guy you like the best, even though it might turn out that way that he becomes the best. It It's not just who's the most raw player. And now speaking of issues within the major leagues, we've got another one that came out uh, right after we, we filmed our first episode or recorded our first episode. And that's the MLB changing balls during the season last year. What in the world? Yeah. So I saw, I originally actually saw this on TikTok and I had to Google it to make sure it's true. But Ezra, I know you have it pulled up right now. So I'll let you explain exactly what happened. So last year, um, there was an issue mid-season because the MLB was changing balls for less watched games, for less important games deemed by the MLB. They would be given less juiced balls. And, you know, that's just, it's messed up. You can't. Without telling anyone. Of course, without telling anybody, none of the players. There was a, the example that I found, um, not that I found, but I was, was made aware of was a Rangers Mariners game mid season. They were given, um, they were given dead balls and there was very little home runs in that series. They deemed the MLB deemed that an unimportant series so they gave them worse balls because they didn't want people to pay attention to that. Whereas the uh, Field of Dreams game, which first of all is an amazing concept, I loved that game. It was so fun to watch, and it did reel in so much money and views for the MLB, which I guess is a good thing. But they juiced those balls to the max. The MLB was deciding what game was important and what game wasn't, and you can't do that in a major sport. It's it's fixing. Yeah, they. it's kind of like how people believe the NFL is scripted. I mean, the MLB actually owns Rawlings, so they get to tell Rawlings how to make the balls and where to ship them for what games. And like, if you even, and so the whole purpose of this was so that players like who, like a player who had a down season this year is Trevor Story. Um, he's on the Rockies who were a god-awful team. And like, he's not going to be demanding as much money now with, the incoming season because he had a bad year last year. And with, with this, you know, screwing players over for their money and having them have worse seasons and making games less important and less desirable to watch the MLB didn't even say they didn't do it. They didn't deny it. They admitted it, but they were like, Oh no, we couldn't because COVID-19 production was causing delays with baseballs, so we had to use older baseballs that were dead. They said uh, every baseball used in a 2021 MLB game, without exception, met existing specifications and performed as accepted, as expected. Pardon. Um, and they said that uh, generally balls are produced six to 12 months prior to being used in the game, but because Rawlings was forced to reduce capacity at its manufacturing facilities in Costa Rica due to COVID-19 the supply of these recentered balls, as they call it, wasn't sufficient. So then, then decided, even if this is true, which I'm sure it is to some, in some extent, but you can't just decide willy nilly who gets what balls. You can't say, oh, this game that's going to be televised in internationally, say the London game that we had a, a couple of years ago, you can't just be like, oh, they're going to get the good balls and we're going to give Orioles 
an Orioles Pirates game, the bad balls, because who wants to watch Orioles Pirates? I want to watch Orioles Pirates. <laughs> People want to watch their teams and they want to watch their teams play well. And I just don't understand how they could have possibly gone through with all of this. It just, it's just ridiculous to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at one game right now that I think was one of the biggest games of the year was like for viewership wise was the Red Sox Yankees wild card game. I mean, it's one of those games that it's a rivalry. You got it's a playoff game. You got many people watching it and looking at both the Yankees runs, all two of them came on home runs, one by Stanton in the ninth and one by Rizzo in the sixth. And it's just looking at the Red Sox. They also had two home runs, one by Bogarts and one by Schwarber. So four home runs with eight runs combined in the game is interesting. And it also makes sure that better teams win pretty much. I mean, in this Yahoo Sports article that I have up, um, it says that uh, it's it's tough to quantify the impact of MLB using two different balls in 2021 but it impacts statistics for each team. It can, if one team gets a larger percentage of these newer, better balls, that explains why their players do better, will make more money, will hit more home runs, win more games, and just become a powerhouse. It keeps the power where it's supposed to be in the eyes of the MLB. It gives the Yankees these these juiced balls. It gives the Red Sox, sorry, not sorry, the juiced balls to make sure that they're reeling in the cash and the long-term effects of this. It keeps them reeling in the cash and it keeps them more able to sign these big stars. And with numbers in specific stadiums, you see guys hitting more home runs at certain stadiums because they're a team in more big games. More free agents want to go there because they can hit better there. And it just has all of these adverse effects that I don't think you can reasonably say are good for the game at all. Yeah, I mean, a few examples that one I literally just thought of right now is one of the biggest markets in the MLB is the San Francisco Giants. And they were projected to not be anywhere near the top of their division. They finished with, what, 107 wins. Yeah, 107 wins. And like just thinking about it, like they had a but like they didn't get a whole new team either. They had a bunch of veterans and Brandon Crawford, Buster Posey that had the best years of their careers. So it's interesting to think about that part of it. And like another thing is the home run derby. You obviously know that the balls are going to be as juice as possible because they want viewership. They want home runs. Everybody knows that's where a lot of the juice balls are. One of the players that wasn't supposed to even get past the first round in Trey Mancini ended up being second place. Trey Mancini deserved to be there. I'll stand by it. Boom, boom for life. So like him coming from a smaller market team, you he hit a lot less home runs than all the other players, but like during the season, but he comes in obviously during the home run derby. I know it's a completely different thing, but during the home run derby, he obviously showed he can, still hit it it really exemplified those disparities between the balls because what Trey Mancini came into the all-star break with like 13 home runs and then hit I think he hit the I think he hit 18 in the first round was it it was just unprecedented for him to do so well but it showed that these small market teams aren't getting the juice balls because if they were 
he would have had similar home run numbers to all of these other guys. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to look at the bracket. Most of them came from small market teams. I mean, Shohei moved on over Soto. Perez, oh no, Alonzo beat Perez, but but I mean, Perez had a hell of a round. Let's not yeah, let's yeah. not take that away from him. Hell of a round and hell of a season for Salvador Perez. Shout out to him, really. And Mancini beat Olsen, and I honestly forget who won between Joey Gallo and Trevor Story. I think it was Story. I think he beat him by one, if I remember correctly. But the point being is that these guys are coming in from small markets, and they're just dominating the ball. They're crushing the ball. There were so many, obviously... It was inflated a little bit oh, again. Oh, Tiny didn't win. What am I saying? No, Alonzo won. No, no, no. Tiny didn't win that round. Soto did. Oh. Another, like, Washington's kind of a small market. Came out and beat the Angels, who are once a pretty big market. The Mets, the one the smaller market, the smaller market in New York, came out and beat the Royals. Which isn't honestly that surprising. Yeah, but the final four were all small market teams so to say i mean baltimore colorado you could argue that washington are big market though i mean it's dc so but still the point remains the juiced balls are messed up and deciding who gets them you just you really can't be having that it's i i could talk about this for so long because it's just too much to to go on about it is so inherently bad yeah it's ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous and going from the bad to the good i know we still have a little bit of time left um but we're gonna introduce a new segment onto the arm barn and so i'm gonna do a quick explanation it's pretty simple self-explanatory really but at the end of each episode we're gonna do mount rushmore's four best players of all time, four best whatevers of all time. You can throw whatever you want out there, but it's the four best for each franchise. And we'll do two an episode. Tonight, we're going to start off with me and Matt's favorite teams, uh, the Orioles and the Sox. And so let's let's start with, with the Red Sox, why don't we? Um, I know we have really similar lists for this one. All right, so we'll start off. Obviously, Ted Williams, number one. Ted Williams is the best pure hitter of all time. I'll I'll stand by that. The dude was a 344 career hitter with, what, 500-plus home runs. I, I'll pull it up. His war was 120-plus <laughs> in his career. Not to mention he lost three years because he was in the military. And and how many how many all-star games did he have, Matt? Oh, around, like, you know, 19. <laughs> 19 all-stars. Two MVPs, six batting titles, and the most whopping and incredible statistic, two triple crowns. Yeah, he's he there's there's no denying that man for however long he played, what was it? 19 years, I think. 19 years, 19 all-star games. 19 years, 19 all-star games. That is insane. Two MVPs, but he finished runner-up twice three times finished in third place Ooh, four to four time runner up finished in third place once fourth place a couple times he only ever finished outside the top 15 once twice in his career and one of those years 1953 he finished 26 in mvp and was named an all-star and he played 37 games 
He had a 407 average that year. In 37 games, he had a 1.4 OPS. He's the all-time leader in on-base percentage. You want to know what that on-base percentage is? It's 482. He was getting on base nearly half the time. You, you would be yanking a chain and you would be trying to pull Mount Everest and you would have a better chance of telling me that you did that than that Ted Williams shouldn't be on the Mount Rushmore for the Sox. It's undeniable. He had one year with an under 400 on base percentage. It was 1959, his age 40 season. (laughs) And he had a 372. The dude was incredible. He's amazing. He's incredible. He's fantastic. He's he's one of the best players of all time. He's the best hitter of all time. Like there's a statue of him in the Hall of Fame for a reason. He he's there. He's called the kid. He was the first of the kid. And you can't argue with him. All right, my second player on this list is Yastrzemski from obviously Boston all throughout his career, 23 years. And I just want to put this into perspective. There was the 19 years of, of Ted Williams directly followed by 23 years of Carl Yastrzemski, another Hall of Famer, another Triple Crown winner, 18-time All-Star, an MVP, three batting titles, like – Another guy that it's pretty hard to to say that he doesn't deserve to be on this on this Mount Rushmore. Yeah, the one thing about the Red Sox that I find interesting for their Mount Rushmore is, is most of these players don't have a ring because of the 86-year drought. So, like, it's kind of hard to, like, think of that. But, I mean, you get to look more at who the best players were compared to World Series rings. Right. You can just look at the stats. I mean, a 379 career on base percentage isn't quite as impressive as Ted Williams, <laughs> um, considering, you know, he leads the history of baseball. Um, but a, like a 285 career average with 3,400 career hits and an, an 1,800 run scored, 1,800 RBIs, slugging 462. And even with these newer statistics, you, his OPS plus was 130. It's 30 better than average. Like, obviously, that doesn't seem like a ton, but it's really impressive. Yeah, he's 30% better than the average MLB player. And he did it for 23 years Yeah, for one team. It's a guy that you can't take off of, off of the Rushmore. Another guy just like Ted Williams, undeniable in my eyes. Yep. Um, my number three is my... I'd say one of the greatest pitchers of all time is Pedro Martinez. I would totally agree with you on that one. I, th- I mean, when you think of the greatest pitchers of all time, one of the first names is always going to be Pedro. The, the standout thing for me is I know it's one season, but in the height of the steroid era in 1999, he had a 207 ERA. And the next year he had a 174. Yeah. I mean, and he was the guy that came up in the all-star game, struck out the side. <laughs> like it's, he's easily one of the best pitchers of all time. And I know there's an argument that can be made that he doesn't deserve to be on this uh, Mount Rushmore because of how many teams he did play for. But I believe that he had three Cy Youngs, right. And only one of them wasn't with the Sox. One was one was with the Expos, but two with the Sox. And he was he finished runner up in MVP voting with the Sox. The dude was incredible. Yeah, I I think he's the greatest pitcher in Red Sox history easily. 
and <laughs> the one well, the greatest of all time, if not the greatest. And our fourth guy, because of course me and Matt have the same list because great minds do think alike, is a guy who we think is a first ballot Hall of Famer this upcoming ballot. Big Poppy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my childhood in one person. For, I mean, 541 career home runs. I mean, he only spent a few years with the Twins. At the beginning of his career, and then he was a lifetime sock. And yeah. he was his best with the socks. Easily. I mean, he didn't do that well with the Twins. I remember hearing a story that Pedro Martinez actually had to convince the Red Sox to sign Big Poppy, which obviously worked out okay. I mean, he's one of – they're eventually going to have to build a statue from his uh, speech after the Boston Marathon bombings. I mean, he's just one of the faces of Boston, still in Boston commercials with Sam Adams and all of that. He's just the face of the city. And unlike the other guys on this Rushmore, he's got three rings to his name, and that's something that really pushed him ahead of a couple of our honorable mentions who we'll get to in a minute, but just looking at the stats for Poppy again, a very long career, another 286 career average. And with the, with 14 years with the Sox, what did he have? 1500 RBIs and might I note 13 stolen bases because Poppy was a speedster too. I saw saw him steal third. I mean, we have 2,000 career hits with the Sox in 14 years, 524 home runs, or doubles, sorry, 483 home runs. That's absurd. Those are absurd numbers. And I, I understand if you want to say some of these other guys that we've thought of on the Rushmore, but there's no face more iconic in Boston sports besides for maybe Tom Brady than David Ortiz. Yeah. I mean, the guy was for a few years, a consistent MVP, top three, top four finisher as a DH, a guy who didn't play the field. He didn't get any of the fielding stats. He wasn't taken into account accounted for fielding at all. He was such a good hitter. He was top two, top three, top four MVP every single year, most years. And now uh, some some honorable mentions we didn't get to talk about. I know Matt has one that a lot of people aren't going to really know right off the bat. So, Matt, why don't you start off with honorable mention number one? So my first on my honorable mention was Tris Speaker. He was the youngest player in baseball history. I believe he signed with the Red Sox at like 15, 16, and he made his debut at 19 years old. Um, in 1907, he played with the Red Sox until 1915. He's the all-time leader in doubles. He's an MVP under his belt too. In Boston, in 1912, the year they won the World Series, um, he won a batting title. And this is all before Silver Sluggers too. Like those weren't things. There was no there was no award for the the best hitter at each position. So he only has one award to his name. But it is an MVP. Yeah, I mean, an MVP that standout 1912 season. He led the league in home runs with 10, which I know isn't amazing, but it was for the time. 53 doubles led the league. Um, he had a 464 on base percentage. His OPS was over 1,000 that year and several years after that. I, I know those years weren't with the Red Sox, but still, the dude's, a, the dude's big for the Sox. Yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, he was just one of the first Red Sox of all time, and I think he got to represent every era, so I threw him in there as my honorable mention. 
And so with my honorable mention, I went with a with a slightly different uh, approach. I was thinking about maybe Carlton Fisk, one of the most, you know, recognizable videos of in baseball history. You have a lot there. But I actually went with uh, Nomar Garcia Parra, one of one of my I know my brother's favorite players. Uh, he has he actually has a bobblehead of him he in was, his room. He was one of my favorite players as well. And he was just so good at seemingly everything. I mean, he won the rookie of the year with the Sox in 97, several MVP votes. He finished runner up in 98. Uh, in 99 and 2000, he led the American League in batting average with a 357 and 372 respectively. In his time with the Sox, he had a in nine years, he had a 41.3 war. That's incredible. I mean, on base percentage over 360, slugging percentage over 520. And the dude was just undeniably so good at everything he did. He played short, he played first, he played third. And he played for a pretty decent amount of time, 14 years, which is not as much as these older players used to, but it's a lot for nowadays. And you just, you just look at his numbers, a 313 career batting average. And with the Sox, it was actually a 323 career batting average. It's just stuff that you don't see a ton anymore. And that's why he's my honorable mention for the Sox Mount Rushmore. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I, I, I agree well, obviously, I don't agree he should be on there, but I agree he's one of the honorable mentions. Um, the only thing that with him is tenure. He didn't stay here too, too long. We traded him in at the deadline in 2004 to get Orlando Cabrera and Doug Mankiewicz, which obviously helped us win a World Series and put us over the top. But he was – he's one of my favorite players of all time. He's partly the reason why I wear number five today. Um, he – I – he was the first MLB jersey I ever had was a Nomar jersey. The guy was just an electric factory for the Red Sox in those few years he was here. And he was also really good in backyard baseball. <laughs> so I just had to I just had to put that out there. The Jeter Garcia Parra era was iconic for Red Sox Yankees. The that was quite a rivalry between teams and between the most loved position on the field, also. Um and now shifting over from Matt's favorite to my favorite, we're going to talk about the Orioles. I'll let you take your team. The Baltimore Orioles, 1983 World Series champion Baltimore Orioles. Now, there's an obvious one. I don't think anybody's going to disagree with, much like the Ted Williams pick. It's Cal. Cal Ripken Jr. Iron Man. The best shortstop of all time. The Iron Man. Two-time MVP, rookie of the year, 19-time All-Star in a career that lasted 21 years. And the only years he didn't go to the All-Star game was his first season in 81, where he only played 23 games, and his second season, where he played 160 and won rookie of the year. The dude was an All-Star every single year after his rookie year from 1983 to 2001 he was great defensively he was great offensively he never missed a game you can't deny it yeah i mean 3,000 hits 400 home runs i mean one of the best defensive players one of the best defensive shortstops two-time mlb player of the year two-time mvp home run derby champion which i didn't even know until right now he did 
a lot in his career. And another thing is he's a Maryland guy and he's still around the Baltimore area to this day. He's an icon. He has Ripken stadium right around Baltimore. It's a 35, 45 minute drive away. He is a staple of Baltimore. And that's why it's just undeniable that he's got to be on this list. Yeah. And so with my second pick for the Rushmore is Brooks Robinson, the vacuum, the Hoover. Best fielder of all time. He was the best 18-time All-Star, 16-time Gold Glove, which is the record for most Gold Gloves, and an MVP, two World Series, World Series MVP, of course, in the Hall of Fame. And the the <coughs> excuse me. Um, a, a career 723 OPS is you know, not the greatest that we've seen, but gold gloves seemingly every single year, 23 years, all with the Orioles. He is undeniably one of the greatest. That's why his numbers are retired. Yeah, not not only did he win 16 gold gloves straight with the Orioles, he had 2,800 hits, almost 2,900, 260 home runs, still hit 270. I mean, he was a solid hitter, and he had the best glove of all time. Called the human vacuum for a reason. I'm of the belief that you could make Brooks Robinson literally never hit the ball, and he would still have a positive war because he was just that good defensively that he changed the game. And it's it's impressive when you look on baseball reference and you see 18 all-stars and 16 gold gloves. The consistency is just something that's that's not seen anymore, really. Yeah, he's one of the players that when you look at today's game, you look at the best fielders and the first position you look at is third base. I mean, right now you got Arenado and Chapman, who are two of the best fielders of platinum glove winners, the yeah. each of them. Um, but Brooks Robinson really set the precedent for a great fielding third baseman. And again, another guy who's still a staple of the Baltimore community is always around, even in his old age. He has a statue in the right behind the opposing bullpen at Camden Yards. And I actually have a a mini statue of his statue because of the giveaway. The dude all around Oriole guy. Um, And so my third entry into the Rushmore of the Orioles is, is Jim Palmer. Easily the best pitcher the Orioles have ever seen. Three Cy Youngs, three World Series, four gold gloves to his name. Also six-time All-Star ERA title twice, a career ERA of 286 in 3,900 innings pitched. And I know we talked about it last, uh, last episode, how much we love a workhorse. 1970. Let's take a look at that year where uh, Jim Palmer threw 305 innings, five complete game shutouts, 17 complete games. 1975, 10 complete game shutouts with 323 innings pitched. And then 1977, somehow didn't win a third straight Cy Young this year with 319 innings pitched, with which led the American League. 22 complete games in 39 games started, both led the league. Uh, his third consecutive 
20 win season ended up being a fourth the year after that. And he was just undeniably the best pitcher the Orioles have ever seen. He's the best pitcher the Orioles have ever seen, the best pitcher the Orioles have ever developed, an all-time Oriole, spent his whole career there. All 19 years of it. 19 years in the MLB, 21 years in total. Um, he was just – three. the three World Series, I think, really tied together. I mean, not only did he win them with the Orioles, who don't win a lot of World Series – Sorry to tell you, Ezra. He was there for all of them. All of them over three cent, uh, three decades. Three centuries. That would have been, that would have been insane. Um, and my last entry into our, uh, our Orioles Rushmore is something that I don't think a lot of people will agree with. I think a lot of people um, will go with Frank Robinson for that one. But I think he's more of a guy that I could see on – the Reds, uh, Mount Rushmore. But my guy is a guy that you will find no stats on for baseball reference for his baseball skills because he wasn't the best player when he played. It's Earl Weaver, greatest manager in Orioles history. He's up there for greatest managers of all time. The dude kicked dirt in umpires' cleats because he wanted them to know that he was in their head. He won a World Series with the Orioles. He's in the Hall of Fame, four AL pennants. He's just, he's the epitome of an old school manager. And he was a leader for the Orioles for so long. He was managing from 1968 to 1982 consecutively, and then came back for 85 and 86. The dude was a, he was a monument. He was the Orioles manager. We don't see that a lot anymore because whenever a manager fucks up, they get booted. Earl Weaver didn't mess up. And even when he did, he didn't get booted. He just was the Orioles manager. And it's something that I really love. He's one of my favorite Orioles of all time. And he's a manager. He didn't step foot on the field as a player. He's easily got to be there for me. Yeah, he, he's definitely a good pick, but I def, I went a different route. I wanted a modern Oriole. Someone that I grew up watching is Adam Jones, is who I went with. He joined the Orioles in 2008 season. He was a four-time All-Star for the Orioles. He won the division in 2014 with the Orioles. He was part of their, uh, so to say, glory years at the 2010s. Glory years is a push Matt I'm as an Orioles fan I'll say that it was it was a few years of happiness with defeat at the end but I mean the guy constantly was hitting 30 bombs a year with the Orioles before he went to Arizona and eventually Japan where he's living his best life might I add yeah but I mean he was a great hitter great fielder won three gold gloves a silver slugger finished top 10 top six in MVP voting in 2012 he was just one of those players that you were always scared to face. He he was an Oriole, and that's what people will remember him as, even through his days in in uh, in the Mariners organization, in his year in Arizona, in his few years now in uh, in Japan. He's an Oriole through and through, and he's still very active in the Baltimore community. Uh, even though he's overseas and he's just, you know, a great guy, AJ 10, 
you gotta love him. I I love that pick for the Rushmore. He's not on mine, but he's definitely one of my. He was close in consideration, really. Now my honorable mention is probably who a lot of people had as their number four. I had Eddie Murray as my number four. He spent 13 years in Baltimore, 350 bombs, 1,200 RBIs, 2,000 hits. He uh, put up a rookie of the year. He had a Hall of Fame career, won the World Series in 1983 with Baltimore. I mean, he won pretty much all of his hardware in Baltimore outside of the one silver slugger in L.A. He's also a switch hitter, which I think we need to we need to note. Um I would say without question, the best of all time. He hit bombs from both sides of the both sides of the plate with 504 in his career, uh, 3,200 hits. Great pick for your honorable mention. Uh, another guy who was in close consideration for my Rushmore. And, you know, as an Orioles fan, I had a lot of guys right on the edge. Um, but I wanted to switch it up by putting Earl on there, give the skipper his due. Um, but Eddie Murray, one of my favorite players of all time just watching old highlights it's just impressive to see a guy that was so talented on both sides of the plate which we don't see a ton anymore but we're seeing more of again um in in recent years with guys hitting bombs on all sides of the plate and so that's that's a that's a it's a lovely pick for your uh for your last honorable mention for the Orioles but I'm going to I'm going to go crazy again with another huge uh baltimore guy really and that's boog powell for my for my honorable mention um the guy is not a name i think that a ton of you are going to to know off the top of your head if you're not an orioles fan but i'll give you some uh some numbers real fast in his time with the orioles he won a world series was runner up not a World Series, an MVP, pardon, um, who was the runner-up once, finished third in voting once, led the league in slugging once, and he was a consistent bomb threat. He was a big guy, and he was just always there for the Orioles when they needed him most. I remember a story about him and Cal and how, and how uh, when Cal showed up uh, in Baltimore, the first thing, uh, Boog said was just get ready, kid. And it's just it's just a really interesting story with Boog. He came up from nowhere, big dude, and he just won an MVP, four All Star games, a couple of World Series, not with uh, uh, not with the Orioles though, um, or one with the Orioles, pardon. And he's just a just a lovely guy, and he's still around Camden Yards all the time he uh actually has a sandwich stand out in right field on utah street that everybody loves he's an icon in baltimore and that's why i had to give him the honorable mention yeah i think it was a great pick it's not a pick that a lot of people are gonna know off the top of their head but i just had to include boog give him his his due time and uh I think that's really all we got for today's episode of the Armbar. And thank you all for joining us. Yeah, we're going to wrap up here. And thank you for listening to episode two, Walked Out.